Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish, the co-editor of Film Comment. This week, I'm on the ground in Berlin, Germany, where the 2024 Berlinale kicked off on February 15th. The festival runs through February 25th, and this year's lineup features new works by Mati Diop, Olivier Assayas, Bruno Dumont, Sai Ming Liang, Hong Sang-soo, Ruth Beckerman, and many other filmmakers. Throughout the week, the Film Comment crew will be reporting on each day's new premieres at the Berlinale through podcasts, dispatches, and interviews. So make sure to subscribe to the Film Comment Letter and the Film Comment Podcast to keep up with all our coverage of this year's Berlinale. All right, I got into Berlin this morning, about 12 hours ago, and I'm already here recording the first podcast of the festival uh, with three great guests who I think all of whom have been attending the festival for a little while and have been kind enough to join me uh, in the lobby of the Hyatt where there is some kind of live music situation. So if you hear some melodic background noise. Oh, it's not that melodic. (laughs) I was trying to be a little tactful. Um, But Jonathan, why do you, don't you introduce yourself? Hello, Jonathan Romney, um, and a uh, long-time contributor to Film Comment, and here for The Observer and Screen Daily. Wonderful. Jessica? Hi, Jessica Kiang. I also occasionally contribute to Film Comment, but I am here mostly for Variety and for Sight and Sound and for The New York Times. And she's already filed three reviews today, y'all. And Jordan? Hi, I'm Jordan Kronk. Um, critic and programmer and filing some pieces for film comment and a few other places, movie, etc. Great. So um, Jordan actually wrote a kind of preview dispatch for us about this year's festival, which is unique and notable in many ways, which if you're a subscriber to the film comment letter, you should have received maybe 30 minutes ago. Uh, Jordan, you did a really wonderful kind of reported overview of some of the reasons the festival has been in the news over the last year. Uh, Primarily the change in leadership. This is the last edition of the festival under Carlo Chatrian and his head of programming, Mark Peranson, who were brought on five years ago. Um, Do you want to just say a little bit about, you know, what your piece talks about and yeah, uh, what is different at this year's Berlinale from that bureaucratic standpoint? Sure. Um, Actually, so in 2020, when Carlo and Mark were brought on board, I wrote a piece for Film Comment previewing in an optimistic tone (laughs) the changes that they were likely to implement. And it has mostly come to fruition. I think the last five years, uh, presumably this year, we'll continue this, uh, has been very exciting and unique programming, uh, much different than the Dieter Koslick regime for the, it was 19 years prior to that, I believe he ran the festival. 
So, um, yeah, this piece that I wrote now, kind of uh, looking back on what they've done, was a little more, uh, I don't know, just sad and like a little melancholy, I guess, since, uh, you know, you hate to see people lose their jobs for what seems to be more political reasons, not uh, anything they did programming-wise. But um, basically, Carlo was given an ultimatum, I guess, at the end of the day, which is they were going to bring in a single director to run the entire festival rather than have two separate directors, an artistic director and a managing director, which Carlo is the artistic director, meaning he picks the films. Um, so once they decided to bring in a new person, like a third person, to oversee it, that didn't sit well, I think, with the direction he wanted to go. That would impact the programming. And he decided to leave after this year. So his contract ends after this edition. So that means his entire team goes with him. Um, the managing director is also leaving. It's a separate thing, but happens to coincide with it as well. And uh, so that is a big deal for people who are kind of invested in this more adventurous kind of filmmaking. Um, and then there's also other controversies with um, the Ministry of Culture inviting a right-wing extreme extremist party to the red carpet opening night, which they eventually rescinded those uh, invitations. And then a couple uh, different groups wanting the festival to acknowledge uh, or call for ceasefire in Gaza, which they have not done. So there's a number of different things going on in addition to the programming changeover. And it all kind of circles around the government and the German political scene, which oversees and runs the festival and funds it. And uh, yeah, so it's pretty unfortunate. And um, but that's kind of the overview of the, the piece. And I think we also have to mention uh, Carla Chatron's co-director, Mariette Riesenbeck, because as I understand it, she's the one who has to do the heavy lifting in terms of facing the public and the, the bureaucratic system in, in, in terms of you know justifying and explaining what the festival's official position right. is on, and it must on be weird whatever too. political issue. Yeah, it must be hard for both of them because they're both leaving and they have to kind of like stand up for the festival that is more or less like getting rid of them. So yeah, yeah it's and a complicated. I believe Marietta had actually announced her leaving before, before yeah. the whole stuff with Carlo went down. But still, yes, it was just, it was all such a shock. And I certainly know on behalf of like the international press cohort, especially, I think so many of us would echo what, what Jordan is saying that I think that what Carlo did with the Berlinale in the last few years that he's had, it has been fantastic. I've really, really loved seeing the changes and I've loved the sense of his personality and his taste in movies coming through so clearly in a lot of the selections. Um, and I think it's a real shame. Yeah, and I, I remember one of the articles that, trade articles that came out about this leadership issue there was an anonymous source who said that Carlos' taste was too effete yeah. for uh, the government. And he doesn't the care about filmmakers. Like the worst <laughs> like line you could use. And I, I'm still sort of reeling from that, you know, trying to puzzle what they could mean by yeah. that. Um, yeah, it, it all seems quite. Mm. And, and of course, they pulled tragic. off something I think really magnificent and heroic, which was running this festival through lockdown and the, you know there was the extraordinary experience in 2021 of sitting at home and I think this was the first festival as, as I remember that we all lived through on our laptops and somehow 
you know, I can't imagine more of an experience of being in the time and being in that situation. But it was an extra, one of the best festivals Watching I've ever what do we attended. See when we look although at I wasn't exactly, there were so many great films <laughs> I, that year, and it was a great achievement. I agree, that was the best like online edition of any festival, just like programming wise. That was Petite Maman was that year. Bad luck being in a loony porn. It was great. Um, I bespoke earlier. They they said Carlo or Carlo cares too much about filmmakers. That was right. his downfall. Yes, he so. cares too much about filmmakers and his taste is too art house and too esoteric. Yeah. Um, and also I should say director to like films, you know, and filmmakers. Exactly. <laughs> um, but also I should say this is not any knock on Trisha Tuttle who is going to be coming in as the new Berlinale head next year. I'm excited to see what she's going to bring to it. It's a she's slightly more of an unknown quantity I think in terms of her actual um, her her programming outlook. Um, but uh, yeah, for the moment, if we're talking specifically about Carlo, I do really think that he was done dirty and it's been a shame. But I, I should say in terms of what, what Trisha Tuttle's going to bring to the festival, I mean, I've worked with her during her her London, um, her, her uh, extended stint running uh, the London Film Festival. And, you know, I mean, she certainly knows what she's doing in terms of, you know, a broad a broad scope and and pulling in audiences and you know drumming up a sure, sense of events which I mean, is she has, difficult there is a certain degree to which it's a slightly poisoned chalice that she is inheriting and so you know she's got a, a big challenge to answer all of those things you know all of the, the contrasting desires for what the, the the festival is going to be in the future yeah and those um, political questions which have really been heightened in the first few days of this festival in a way that you know in the press conference and in the uh, you know, protests by by festival workers, uh, you know, in a way that probably no one could have quite predicted, certainly, you know, a few, even a few weeks ago. So uh, a fraught edition, to say the least, and we'll have some more discussion on those uh, contextual and structural aspects in the coming days, especially with regard to the withdrawal of certain filmmakers from the sidebar forum expanded sections. And um, there are ongoing actions uh, with respect to the festival stance on Gaza. But we have managed to see a few movies <laughs> in our first couple of days here. And uh, I actually missed the opener uh, which I have over the last few years at major festivals has have assumed is a safe choice <laughs> to just like come in after the opening night and give myself that extra day. But I know all three of you uh, very dutiful soldiers of cinema did see it. And so start us off by maybe talking about small things like these by Tim Milantz. Uh, Jonathan, you want to go for it? Um, yes, I've got to say it's an incredibly bold choice and a very surprising one. Um, the uh, you know the the kind of uh, hot selling point, as it were, is uh, Killian Murphy in the lead. Uh, you know, one of the biggest films of last year, and you know, one of I think the outstanding small films of this year. I would guess it is a very small film. Um, it's based on a very short novel or a novella by the Irish writer Claire Keegan, um, who I hadn't read before. And I just happened to see this book at the airport and read it on the way over. And it took me, you know, 90 minutes, if that. It's a beautiful book. Uh, the film really does justice to it. It's very close to uh, that evocation of uh, an Irish town in the 1980s. Um, and it's about a man, uh, um, a coal merchant, uh, played by Killian Murphy, um, 
carrying the world on his back, on his shoulders, or in the shoulders of his very kind of distressed-looking donkey jacket. It's, it's basically the story, without giving too much away, it's about him becoming aware of uh, the shocking history of the Catholic um, Magdalene laundries, uh, to which um, young women, young unmarried mothers were sent, and uh, in which many, many, many suffered, and uh, and many died. In fact, uh, as as the film points out, um, but it, it's a remarkably um, non sensationalistic film. Uh, it's a remarkably introverted film. I mean, he gives a very introverted performance, but you absolutely know what's in his mind and what he's feeling all this time. This this very uh, ordinary family man who becomes aware of the intolerance around him, the the lack of empathy of other people, including his wife, the the fact that everyone basically wants to preserve the status quo because they know that the Catholic Church, in the form of this terrifying icy nun, um, Emily Watson, that the Catholic Church rules the game and that there is no escaping it. And he is the one finally who's sort of asking the questions and and taking action. Uh, and it's, it's, it's beautifully understated, incredibly atmospheric. You actually feel all the way through that coal dust and condensation have somehow seeped to into every single shot. I mean, it's beautifully done. Resident Irish person? <laughs> yes, resident <laughs> Irish person. Well, actually, it's interesting from like following on from what we're talking about with it being Carlo's last edition. I think one of the questions was, you know, when when you're going into an edition, you already know that the the artistic director is going to be leaving. Is it can go either of two ways? Is this going to be sort of the lame duck edition where it's like, screw you, I don't really have to bother, or is it going to be like, wow, I'm going to go out with a bang and show you guys what you're all missing? And I think the choice of this opening film suggests it's going to be the last. And I mean, it really does bode very well. This film, like for me, going into it, had two strikes against it. It is a a Berlinale opener, not just like a major festival opener, but specifically a Berlinale oh. opener. And and you know, as as good as the selection has often been here in previous years, the opener tends to be a stinker. Like there have been truly some of the worst films. Um, so it was the opener, and also for me personally, it's Irish, and I am enormously prejudiced against Irish movies being Irish myself um, and so I cannot say how like surprised I was by this film and how much I how much I admired it um, especially because I actually you know I, I was little I grew up in exactly the period that the film is set um, and there is something about um, a little bit as, as Jonathan was saying that this kind of there's a qual a certain quality of Irish grime that was really specific to the mid-1980s and that worked itself into like the window panes and into the, you know, onto the, the floor that it just feels like they somehow went back in time and got that exact grime. Um, it's just, there's a, there's a, the, the feel the feel of the dampness of it is also helped by it's set around Christmas so it's in a very in a, in a time where there's just not very much light anyway so everything is happening kind of just before or after dawn or just before or after nightfall um, and it's yeah, so the, it's just this feeling of claustrophobia and it's this feeling of of introversion um, but it's also it's despite it's really, really clever evocation of period. And I often think it's very hard to, to um, evoke recent period, period that people might actually have lived through and can really identify. Um, but aside from that, you might think it would sort of go for 
you know, really lean into that and go for wide pictorialist vistas or even, you know, and it, it's not, it's really closely focused on the Killian Murphy character. And um, I think it's really interesting in that context as well. In so many cases, when, some, when somebody is a front runner for a major Oscar, there are also kind of the support movies that come along, like we have with Lily Gladstone. She has Fancy Dance and she has that, that other indie that she did last year. But in addition to Killers of the Flower Moon, obviously, and Killian Murphy hasn't actually had that so far. He's had Oppenheimer and obviously has been, you know, all over the place for that. But this really does function like this. I think it's sort of, it really shows the other side, the other things that he can do. And it brings a real... It, it just uh, he has such a he delivers such a lovely deep performance um and it's a performance that in contrast to his performance obviously in Oppenheimer is about the depths that a very ordinary and very um ostensibly small life can contain um as opposed to the the bombast of the man who created the atom bomb so i mean it's really it's i, I really can't recommend it enough and it's also i think the most sensitive and the most the, the least sensationalist even though there are moments of almost gothic horror in it um, is the least sensationalist treatment of this particular story which is one of the great national shames of, of Ireland's recent history um, and uh, yeah so just like well done to all concerned I think it's a really terrific film maybe I should have flown in a day earlier but I feel like Jordan is maybe a little cooler on <laughs> no, this no, no. well I don't want to harsh anyone's vibe <laughs> no I mean it's a handsome respectable opener and playing in competition too which is the reason I saw it it's not always the case where the opener is in competition um, so I mean it, I can't say I really liked it but it is a very introverted film to me uh, to the point where it's like barely one note throughout and uh, one of those movies where everyone talks like in a whisper and yeah not Totally my thing, didn't totally work for me, but I did like Killian Murphy in it, and the last sequence I thought was quite effective without talking about it in depth, but it has an interesting like final sequence shot that was uh, moving and everything. But it, uh, yeah, I think that maybe the best part of the film is the maybe uh, production design, the feel of the, the landscape and the setting, and that was very evocative. Um, but as a narrative, it never drew me in really, but yeah, I can totally see how it would other people and, yeah. I, I'd also just I wanted to say as well that like some of the phrases that are used are so unbelievably specific to that period of time. There's one bit where the nun, where the nun played by Emily Watson says to the Killian Murphy character at one point something about because he goes into the convent and he isn't wearing his jacket and she says leave your jacket off so that you'll feel the benefit of it later and that is like such an Irish thing it's a really specifically this is a whole like Irish mammy thing that they're all obsessed with you taking off your coat as soon as you go into a house so that you'll feel the benefit of it when you put it on again when you go out into the cold later just like little turns of phrases like that which really felt absolutely pulled from from my memories and from life well um yeah, but I guess I'll just have to check it out for myself uh, to see if I should have any regrets. Um, but another movie, kind of uh, an anticipated movie of these first couple days that Jordan, Jonathan, and I saw right before recording this podcast is Oliver Asayas's Suspended Time, uh, his first movie feature since Wasp Network. Is that correct? That could be correct, so, yeah. 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 I forgot uh, about that movie. <laughs> well, I remembered it because in the movie... It's mentioned, his, or they mentioned that they yeah, were shooting they, a film. His stand-in, played once again by Vincent McCann, who 
I say once again, because if you saw Irma Vep, the TV series, um, he played sort of an on-screen Asayas, and that happens again in this movie. Makes many references to being in Cuba before the pandemic to shoot the last movie. But um, I was really looking forward to Suspended Time, even though I've been sort of mixed on the last few Asayas features. I loved the Irma Vep series. I really found it quite thrilling uh, and uncomfortably personal. You kind of got a peek into Asayas's creative and personal life in a way that a little bit self-pitying, late, you know, uh, late-stage French auteur self-pity vibe to it, but also something very playful and very kind of brazenly candid that I really appreciated. Um, and this actually is in a similar vein. I think it's almost uh, a companion piece to Irma Vep in, in, in certain senses. It's basically a portrait of the time that Asaya spent during the pandemic in his family home with his brother, Etienne, uh, and all the emotions that spending that suspended time, quote-unquote, in the space where they spent their childhoods, where they grew up, all the kind of sensations and feelings that that space brought up, and also the tensions that, you know, are bound to come up when you are confining as an adult with your sibling. Uh, so there's a lot of that, them clashing and and sort of trying to make sense of each other's neuroses. But I think what makes it quite surprising is that it is woven through with bits of voiceover by Asayas that are kind of documentary style voiceovers or memoirish, I should say, more than documentary, where we see images of his house, of this family house and the surroundings, the neighbor's garden, the trees. Uh, and Asayas talks about the experience of growing up and how these various elements have inspired his movies or his, you know, relationship with his brother and other elements that then are also dramatized in the movie through Vincent McCann and a, a whole bunch of other actors who play, I guess, versions of the real people in Asayas's life. Like his brother is named Etienne in real life and also... His brother is called Mishka. In real life, really? Yeah, his brother is is uh, a music critic called Mishka Sayas. He's a music critic in the film. Too. He is a crit the, yeah, but and he's, he's, not he's written books I thought on he, U two and that kind of thing. I thought he said in the opening voiceover that my brother. Do you think that's a bit this, of a this is confusing red because herring? the the voiceover that runs all the way through at the beginning, I assumed that it was Vincent Macanian character talking about being this character, uh, Paul. Then later in the film, you realize that it's Asayas himself talking about his own early life. And you even see a document. It's like his, his uh, dissertation with the name Olivier Asayas on it. It's, it's confusing. And maybe he's out to confuse us. I mean, this is the odd thing. You said Irma Vep was, was uncomfortable. I mean, this in the same way is uncomfortable. But at the same time, it's rather comfortable. I mean, it's, it's very cozy. He does talk about, you know, why can't cinema be back in touch with nature? And why can't cinema, you know, go back to doing the things that, you know, I guess one of his heroes, Jean Renoir, did. Uh, why can't it be painterly? And he talks about Monet and he talks about David Hockney. And of course, you know, uh, Jean Renoir and his his painter father Pierre Auguste Renoir come into the film, um, 
it's it's riddled with references both to Asaias's own life, uh, sometimes in in a sort of ouch, too much information way, when he's obviously referring to his um, separation from his ex-wife, Mia Hansen-Love, and, you know, their, their kind of, their daughter shuttling between them. Um, the you nude know, sketches of a woman named Claire who stands in for Maggie Chung, <laughs> very I, obviously. I'm not sure. I think it may, have been, it may have been an early girlfriend long before that, because he talks about his first girlfriend. Um, but, you know, who knows? Um, but you know, all the cards are on the table. Um, and, and, and you do feel uncomfortable and yet in the same way, it's sort of terribly cozy. And I hate to kind of overuse the word, uh, privilege, but the, the way privilege comes across, you know, I have no objection to the fact that, you know, it's set in this beautiful house amid beautiful, uh, scenery, but, but the element of privilege is he's very much kind of, banding around his his cultural capital as it were you know the erudition and you know this is i think what often people object to with french films and they in this case they may have a point you know the cultural name dropping throughout is you want to say well just just pull back a little bit you know the great tragedy of how his father didn't buy didn't know to buy a modigliani when he was offered <laughs> one <laughs> I thought that was a very, that was a detail that did, that was funny, but also I think exemplifies what you're saying, Jonathan, where I do think in the movie he relies a little too much on these charming details that are only charming because of their pedigree, kind of, you know, and there's just too many of them. And I mean, I, I, I am charmed by the movie. I mean, they they work on me. These little um, these little flourishes worked on me. And Vincent McCann is just so so endearing. You know, even when he's playing someone unlikable, he's so endearing that I couldn't help feel drawn into the movie. Also, as someone who's very neurotic and paranoid, I felt so seen <laughs> by his character or by I guess Asayas's personality. But the movie does end in a place that I found unsatisfactory in the sense that all of it amounted or amounts to this reflection on, on Asayas or Paul's kind of comfort or complacency in secluded time and space and being in this family home, in not, in kind of separating himself from his professional life, from the larger kind of cultural world. And that seemed to me like not a very profound or special realization to drive at in 2024. Yeah. It's, it's maybe relatable, but too relatable. Many of us had that thought, perhaps, this moment of stillness that felt like re relief, mm. reprieve. But it just felt very slight, ultimately. I think this may be the first period film about lockdown. <laughs> um, this is the first film possibly made about lockdown looking back at it as a sort of distant period i mean the other thing we can't avoid is the fact that uh the two brothers are both there with their remarkably beautiful girlfriends <laughs> who are you know immaculately dressed throughout and don't really get to do very much or say very much but the brothers are there having their arguments and kind of you know doing their kind of neurotic stuff working on their art make, working and on, their craft and 
and, and the girlfriends are doing yoga. Yeah, and they're there, <laughs> and they're, they're sort of basically there to say, "Oh gosh, you guys, you're, you're so adorable, even at your most annoying." And you guys mm. are just trying to make me feel better about not having seen this film, aren't you? I mean, I actually. <laughs> I acknowledge all of this and I still really enjoyed it and was touched by it. And I don't know if that has to do with, you know, watching a filmmaker's work over the years and then encountering something that feels very diaristic has a particular pull, you know, that exceeds what the film means on its own. Uh, but Jordan, what did what were your well, I thoughts? Like, I like the movie. It is it's small, maybe minor, quote unquote, but I think lovely as well in, in points. Um, I think the best parts of the film are the almost documentary essayistic uh, sections. Essayistic? Uh, yeah, essayistic. Jeez. <laughs> um, We've spent too much time podcasting with Justin <laughs> Chang. But those moments are really lovely and very obviously personal and mostly autobiographical, I think. And um, I mean, there are moments in the movie that you could consider like a landscape film. They're like minutes on end of just like the landscapes around the house. The opening flourish of like three minutes of just like yeah. the shots around the house is really beautiful. Um it doesn't maybe work quite as well with just like the bickering amongst the brothers. We didn't really say they're like opposite in every way. One is a COVID, like uh, he's anxiety over COVID and won't touch anything. What this is like said in tw April, 2020 or something. So they're like, wipe. he wants to leave the groceries outside the house for four hours. And there's all these like details from that. Yeah. Period. A friend of mine used to microwave all his mail every day. <laughs> this is essentially similar things that the Vince McCain <laughs> characters often do. Burnt. But the music critic brother is more laissez-faire and, you know, um, so they contrast in that way. And so that's stuff, I mean, me and Jonathan were mentioning it slightly beforehand. Like it's, there's like an implicit like awkwardness almost making a film about this now. Like it's hard to, I don't know how I feel watching it. It's just strange, I guess. Like, I thought it was quite bracing at the end when his ex-wife comes on and she's clearly just sort of had enough of this yes. guy. She's kind of very impatient with him. And it really introduced a nice sort of piquant note that I thought the rest of it didn't Yeah, that's funny. She like takes her mask off and blows cigarette smoke in his face and <laughs> he's like freaking out. Uh, but yeah, no, I thought it's a nice film. And yeah, I think it's just, I, I like him working in the autobiographical mode more than like the Wasp Network stuff, which like I said, I barely remember that movie. But yeah. uh, I have to say, I, you know, Vincent McCain, you still does an absolutely impeccable impersonation of Olivier yes. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't even uh, tell the voiceover uh, apart so from McCann's voice. So I guess that speaks, speaks to his impression. Um, Jessica, you saw a movie that you really loved. You want to tell us about that? Uh, sure, yes. Um, so last night I saw the competition title La Cocina, which is directed by Alonso Ruiz Palacios, um, who previously, I'm a big fan of his, he previously did a movie, His I think his, maybe it was his first movie, was Gueros. Um, then he did a film which I absolutely lost my mind for called Museo, which I just completely loved. Um, and then last time in a uh, uh, Berlin competition as well, he uh, made the absolutely brilliant, uncategorizable hybrid something or other meta something or other called a cop movie. Um, and that was during the um, online year that you were talking about, which is one of those, a, a, a strange kind of year for, for a movie like that to have played. It also was very strange that it was on Netflix and called a cop movie. And I just can only imagine what somebody, you know, flinging, going through their Netflix queue 
going, hey, a cop movie, this sounds great, and then putting on a cop movie because it is uh, completely bonkers and um, uh, very, very deconstructed and really, you know, self-interrogatory in really interesting ways. Anyway, so La Cucina, La Cucina was one of the, the films that was one of my most anticipated films coming into this because I am such a, a stan for this guy. Um, and I really, really loved it. I think I just, it's, it's, it, uh, it's so uncategorizably odd, this film, um, but all of its failures, and its failures are many, but all of them are failures of like grand ambition and g enormous overreach. And I think that there's something incredibly noble even about those failures, the failures that are writ so large that they almost become like virtues to me. Um, so it is set in, uh, it's also just brilliantly shot. The, the, the Every time I watch a Ruiz Palacios film, I just come away just yet again so impressed by the sheer directorial cojones of this guy the chutzpah the um he just uh, like every single scene is put together in a really inventive and unusual fresh way um even if it's a scene of something that is that would ostensibly be quite trite he he finds a new angle on the action he finds a new way of telling these things and there is also then almost nothing trite about this film. It is, um, I mean, you could you can make uh, glib comparisons to, for example, The Bear. It is set in the kitchen of a very busy uh, restaurant. Um, so actually, maybe not The Bear then, um, but a very busy restaurant in New York's Times Square. Um, uh, it, it period. So it's not right now. It's, it's slightly back in time. Um, Rooney Mara is in it she's not she's part of the cast she's part of the ensemble i mean she is sort of a, a featured player but really it's just it's about um really uh, bold boldly and bold-facedly about the immigrant experience in uh in america it's a it's actually I'm going to be really I'm going to sound really bombastic here but it, it is actually to me about like retooling the very notion of what the, this, this there's this whole cliche it's almost a cliche now that like you know it shows the dark side of the American dream or the American dream turns into a nightmare whatever it is and this to me goes even back beneath that again and shows that actually what we're talking about the American dream is completely wrong because we talk about the American dream and the the people who get to dream that dream are not the people who actually make America. There is a line in it that one of the characters says, which is uh, basically, um, there's no such thing as America. Um, you, you're, he's, one of the characters claims to be um, like, fuck you, man, I'm American. And the guy goes like, America's not a country. What are you talking about? And it is this incredibly um, complex and uh, really just ballsy um, head-on uh, sorry, head-on um, uh, uh, interrogation of America and what it means to, means to be American while also having an identity that is probably uh, from a different uh, ethnic background or um, any of those things. It, it, it's, and that this doesn't even get into, remotely into the actual story of it, which is really kind of a love story that happens. The Rooney Mara character is a waitress in the restaurant and she is pregnant with 
um, as the result of a as a brief tryst with um, one of the uh, cooks in the restaurant. He is kind of crazy in love with her. Um, she is uh, considering having an abortion. Um, so that's part of this whole panoply of stuff. Um, but then there are just these moments where we follow a different character or a different set of characters. The the cinematography, which is mostly in black and white, is absolutely incredible, woozy and strange um, and slightly edged in surreality always. Um, there are entire sequences which are just a character, character going off and telling a story of a dream that he that he once had or a, a story that he once heard where suddenly all of the ambient sound comes go, uh, leeches out and all we hear is his voice and maybe the the lighting of a cigarette or something it's just uh, on a craft level and on a narrative level it's just one of the most exciting and unusual and strange movies um i've seen in a long time so yeah Damn. huge fan now that's a recommendation yeah. <laughs> uh jonathan jordan anything blow your minds uh, like La Cocina did Jessica's? Um, no, I've got to say I'm really looking forward to La Cocina. I haven't seen it yet, uh, but I'm also a huge admirer of uh, Alonso Ruiz Palacios. And I have to say that his second film, Museo, which was here, I think is one of the most scandalously overlooked films of recent years. Great, great film, which is worth digging out if you can <laughs> possibly find it. That was a, a it. film that I reviewed it for Variety and I raved about it so much in my review that the the publicist of the film actually took me aside and was like, I think you went a bit overboard. <laughs> it's the first time that a publicist yeah. was actually like... I it's mean, starting to sound like we paid you. <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. yeah. You might want to tone it yeah. down a bit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, But he has made great films. I'm really looking forward to this one. Um, in terms of what I've seen, well, um, a very significant and substantial film is um, At Averroes and Rosa Parks. The French title is Averroes and Rosa Parks. The English language title, for some reason, is At Averroes and Rosa Parks. So they obviously wanted to make sure that people didn't think it was a sort of joint biopic or something. Mm. Um, but these are the names of uh, two psychiatric units in a hospital outside Paris. Interestingly, although it's not mentioned in the film, it used to be the notorious... Um, Charenton Asylum, where uh, at one at one point, different points, it played host to um, Artaud, Verlaine, and the Marquis de Sade. Obviously, not at the same time. Um, and um, these are now psychiatric units, um, part of the same medical psychiatric system in France that. Uh, the documentarist Nicolas Philibert examined in his um, previous film on the adamant, which won the Golden Bear here last year. So on the adamant was a study of a kind of day drop-in centre uh, on, a, on a sort of boat uh, moored on the Seine. And um, this is about people, um, more specifically, who who have had, you know, long-term stays um, at this particular hospital and um, it's very different because the first film uh, was was very kind of celebratory. It, it showed all these, um, you know, the, the different patients dropping in uh, and interacting with each other, uh, interacting with psychiatrists, interacting with social workers. And it was very much a film about um, what a good psychiatric system based on respect and understanding and above all culture um, 
brings to people. And and Philibert chose some really fascinating people there who were really, you know, very, very vivid case studies. People who just, you know, that each one of them you could have spent hours with. Um, there was one guy who was a sort of poet Modi character singing these extraordinary songs um, at the organ who was like a kind of very kind of, you know, uh, generation of 68 French version of Daniel Johnston or something. But, it, it, you know, really interesting people. This film is more about the kind of the hard tax of the interaction between patients and their psychiatrists, or in some cases, I think some of them are, are sort of social workers or something like that. But um, it's more about the system uh, than the individuals and more about the different kinds of um, crisis uh, that lead people to, to become resident in, in um, psychiatric wards. Um, there are some case studies in there. There are some, some character studies in there. There's one extraordinary guy in it who you kind of think, wow, you know, in France, I mean, judging from Philibert's films, you really get a kind of classier um, breed of mental patient because they're all dropping references to Nietzsche and Aristotle, you know, just like they've walked out of an Olivier Assayas film. And you're wondering whether this is the norm or particularly he's choosing uh, very well-educated people. Um, but, you know, they're all extremely articulate, extremely self-aware. But there's a guy in there who is an academic, a university teacher who has had burnout, um, who is clearly, you know, an imploded genius. And, you know, he talks at one point about how he became the people he read. And he said he was walking around, I was Nietzsche. Um, and here's someone who, who, you know, like many of the people in this film, exude extraordinary charisma and extraordinary energy. But there are also two sequences with an elderly woman who's clearly deeply distressed, has suffered massively, and is suffering massively on the screen in front of you in a very harrowing, very disturbing way. And you wonder, of course, you know, this raises questions about consent about you know the intrusiveness I of was, the camera i was just going to ask you about that i haven't seen the film and i didn't see sur Ladamont uh either but whether you felt that there were any sort of yeah intrusions or whether it all all felt sort of kosher i don't think there's an easy kind of ethical answer in the this sort of filmmaking but i do wonder when you are dealing with psychiatric patients and you know, I remember a few years ago or a couple of years ago, the film at Cannes, uh, Dehumani Corporis Fabrica, I really struggled with one of the sequences that has, I think, patients in an old age home who are suffering dementia uh, and are clearly kind of not cogni cognitively all there. And it, I, when documentaries, documentarians go into hospitals and are especially dealing with people who we don't know if they're able to fully give consent I wonder how that works or feels it's also I mean I think also I have actually seen this this film I saw it before the festival and so um I think it's I, I mean at Averroes and uh, Rosa Parks is part of also kind of a, a strange rash of French healthcare documentaries that have been coming out recently uh, but I think to to your point Devika what the 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 um 
the contrast that always uh, occurs to me is with Claire Simon's um, Our Body, where there's a literal scene in that. I mean, obviously, that's not about um, psychiatric care. It's about physical care. But there is a, the, a scene in it where um, a, a woman going under the knife, I think for um, a mastectomy or something, um, where she has a whole conversation about consent and about how how proud she is to be able to give consent for this the filming of this and when you see it done so uh, respectfully as it is there there it does bring up certain questions i think with the, these philibert docs uh, but the, the the thing that actually holds me back from being able to wholeheart i think Averroes and Rosa Parks is really interesting in many ways and a lot of what John's saying is like that the, the, the guy who is the the kind of the genius um, is just a fascinating character but one of the things that disturbed I don't know if it's disturbed me or just one of the choices that I found surprising was so many of them so many of the characters they, they seem to be making some kind of progress they are certainly you know uh, working their way towards day release working their way towards um, even being able to go back to the Adamant or whatever it is um, uh, and but he chooses to end on the woman who is the most um, far gone with whom for whom the, the, those questions of consent uh, occur most strongly and the choice to for her um, at a particularly devastating break moment for her to be the last uh, person that we see is just seemed really oddly pessimistic for a film that for the vast majority of its runtime is actually you know very pro what's going on here very pro these the the professionalism and the compassion of the healthcare professionals themselves so yeah there were there were questions about it that that kind of hold me back from being able to wholeheartedly recommend it I think I, I suspected that he didn't want to end with uh, the genius, who clearly is a genius, um, this guy Noe, um, because I think he didn't want to make us feel too secure about the realities of mental illness. And I think he wanted us to understand at the end that there are some things that psychiatry cannot do and yet, what we do see in that scene is that the shrink who's dealing with this woman is incredibly empathetic and reassuring to, to, to her and is able to sort of guide her. Now, now the questions of, of, of ethics and consent, so, you know, I... I, I Foucault knowing would his be work, rolling I, in his grave is all I'll say. Sorry? <laughs> Foucault would be rolling well, in his yeah, grave. But I, I do imagine that, you know, knowing Philibert's work, that uh, this is not something that he would have, you know, considered casually. And also being, um, I believe, uh, a good friend of Frederick Wiseman, who, who faced the same question in 1967 with his film Titicut Follies. So he will be, you know, he will be aware of a long history history of um you know medical cinematic ethics i mean where these questions are more problematic and and the you know where it kind of particularly worried me is in sort of the use of um apparently long-term um mental patients in uh, bruno dumont's film particularly several of his films particularly um camille claudel where it wasn't quite sure what the rules of engagement were. And I think in a, in a documentary, I think the rules of engagement are bound to be clearer. 
both for the audience and for the people involved. And presumably, I'm guessing also in, in, in the case of the elderly woman who may not have been able to consent, that it would be to do with her family who may have had particular reasons for approving of her inclusion. But again, we don't know, you know, until I mean, we go and interview these, these Phoebe These are not Bell, just questions know. of cinema either, you know, I mean, these are questions about consent on a larger structural level on you know, who has the right to speak for someone who we assume does not have agency over their own bodies or minds. So in a way, these questions feed into those questions. They are not isolated questions of filmmaking at all. Um, but yeah, I, I'm interested in checking this one out. So um, thank you both. It and is a much, much harder watch as well than, than the previous film. Right. Yeah. Jordan, do you want to close us out by saying a few words on a film I believe you saw today and liked very much? Sure. Yeah. I'll quickly shout out a film called The Adamant Girl uh, by the Indian director P.S. Vinithraj, uh, the director of Pebbles, which won the Tiger Award, I think, in Rotterdam uh, three years ago. That was his debut. This is his second feature. Um, so I was quite excited for it. Premiered in the Forum, which itself is actually under new leadership this year, too. Um, that's another topic. But um, anyway, this film uh, is very interesting. It is, marks like a uptick in production value. If you saw Pebbles, it was very kind of rough and tumble. I think shot with like pretty cheap DV cameras. Um, this has, you know, higher higher production standards and stuff. So it's a little more elegant, but it still has that real kinetic feel to it. Lots of moving camera and interesting angles and things like that. Um, and it's also a road trip movie like that film was. Uh, this film deals with a young woman who's been promised, married off to a local guy. But the problem with that is she kind of harbors feelings for, I think it was a uh, former sweetheart or his classmate. Um, so she doesn't want to get married to, to this guy she's been promised to by her family. Um, and so she's gone silent. And they think that her silence is her being possessed. So the, the whole idea behind the film is the two families of the, the husband-to-be and the wife are going to, they're going to go and have her exercise this spirit, this demon, whatever's, uh, you know, afflicting her i guess so it's a road trip film where the families go where the women are in like a rickshaw the guys are on motorcycles and most of the film is them going to this like remote location with like a rooster to c complete the ritual and there's like little it's like little vignettes of them you know stopping to chat with the locals urinate and otherwise on the side of the road uh so it's very funny but also it you know deals with serious um, the the husband-to-be is very angry about this situation and they think the father's putting the woman up to it or, or there's various cultural like things that are going on that are uh pitting the two families against each other so it gets violent at times some stuff is actually hard to watch there are moments where the husband is like physically assaulting a lot of the women in the uh, opposite family um, as well as the father, father-in-law. Um, so yeah, it just it basically builds to them getting to this ritual, which I won't spoil. But it's very uh, illuminating film, but also really entertaining and fun in, in the same style as his other film. Yeah, I, I definitely want to check that one out because Pebbles was just such a bolt from the blue. Totally, just yeah. a completely surprising debut that was so lean, but so imaginative. I should have said also Favoriten, the Ruth Beckerman documentary, yes. which was in Encounters. I didn't didn't talk. We were doing our little pre-talk because we have a pre-talk, people. 
Mm, no, it's, it's screened yesterday. It's screened yeah? yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Never no, because okay. I've reviewed it and in my All right. review. You, that was you know better. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> I went up this morning. Um, so, uh, favorite. It's called Favoriten, which is um, uh, the name of a district in Vienna, um, where the largest elementary school in Vienna um, is situated. Um, and this is Ruth Beckerman, whose previous film Mutzenbacher won the Encounter section here in Berlin um, a couple of years ago, um, and pre prior to that as well, she did another film called The Waldheim Waltz. Um, she, she, um, as a director, as a documentary director, especially has a reputation for a kind of a very stern, slightly didactic, um, uh, way of putting together her, her films. Um, and that's certainly true of Mutzenbacher. And it's just so delightful that that is completely absent from this film. She's really down at the, the level of the seven, eight and nine year olds who are her, her subjects here. Um, it follows the same class. Um, from their third grade, essentially through their fourth grade and into their fifth grade. Fifth grade in Austrian schools is the final grade of primary school education after which the children actually have to, or the parents have to make a decision about whether they're going to push their children into the sort of the higher um, uh, profile gymnasiums, uh, I think, or, or to go into like technical schools or anything. So like at 10 years of age, which seems really young to me, there's already this sort of streaming happening. So this, this film happens just before that, that occurs. Um, and it is just so full of life and so funny. The kids themselves are just a, an absolute delight to be around. Um, and the teacher, it's, you know, in, in some ways it is reminiscent of Herr Bachmann and his class which was another mm. film recently, a, lo a longer film by Maria Speth about um, a German, uh, very inspirational school teacher and his class. But I actually, I prefer the focus of Favoriten because it is more on the students, even though the teacher is a, a particularly great teacher and a really committed um, and uh, inventive teacher who has a great relationship with her students. Here, it is more about the students. You almost get a slightly boyhood-esque vibe to it because you're following them for three years of their life. Mm. You see their faces change. You see their behavior develop. Um, and it's just, it's, it's a bizarrely optimistic film, even though it does highlight lots of structural <coughs> problems that they're, that exist within the Viennese um, education system and that probably exist within most education systems, um, understaffing and lack of social support, social work support and things like that. But overall, you just get this kind of like the kids are all right kind of feeling. Um, and certainly the kids who are exposed to this level of really compassionate and interested um, and engaged teaching. So, yeah, it's a it's a really just a joyful film. Very Great. touching film, too, I think, yeah, by the end, because you... I don't know, in the U.S., you don't have the same teacher every year for multiple right. years. So they have this this woman for three or four years. Uh, and so by the end, when they have to part ways, uh, it's very moving for the students and for the teacher. And that comes across. It's, yeah, a really lovely movie. Well, I, I'm going to check it out tomorrow. So I look forward to it. Um, well, with that, I think we'll wrap up this first episode. Uh, thank you to all three of you for joining. Thank you. Thank you. And good luck on the next week of movie watching and podcasting, mind you. I'll have you back. All right. Right. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com. 